series in Revelation, just as we go through uh, the Word of God, every book of the Bible is intended uh, for our good in the Lord, and so this is an important book, 22 chapters in Scripture, so we're going through it for that reason, really, it's part of God's Word. Uh, We don't have a particular focus just on things in Revelation, but the Word of God as a whole. Glad you're with us this morning. If you're new here, I um, just want to introduce myself. My name is Paul Buckley. I'm the lead pastor here. And it's my privilege on most Sundays to bring God's Word. We're going to look at chapter 14 as we make our way. And as you turn there, let me ask, uh, how many people here are Red Sox fans? It's okay. You know, you don't have to boo or you don't have to boo others. Just, I'm just wanting to know if you're a Red Sox fan. So hands up, Red Sox fans. All right. Uh, if you are a Red Sox fan and you're over the age of, uh, I'm doing numbers on the fly again, we're going to get in trouble, 14, um, you probably remember the following names. Kevin Millar, Johnny Damon, Manny Ramirez, David Ortiz, Pedro Martinez, Kurt Schilling. Those names, what, what does that bring to mind? The World Series, the 2004 World Series when the Red Sox reversed the curse. Um, Do you remember the ninth inning of the fourth game of the American League Championship Series against the Yankees? Do you remember that? Ninth inning, we were losing four to three and we had lost the previous three games. So it's the end of the game. Uh, It's almost all over and once again as a Red Sox fan, we're all thinking, here's the curse again as we called it. They're going to lose again after all this uh, great season and so forth. And by the way, uh, the, the Yankees put forward probably the best closer in baseball at that time. Remember Mariano R- Rivera? He takes the mound. It looks like it's all over. Our hopes being dashed once again. But uh, David Roberts gets put in to pinch run. He scores on a RBI single by Bill Mueller. Do you remember that? And so the game's tied, it goes into extra innings, and it goes really late, actually. The whole series goes late at that point. Uh, But they end up, uh, in in the 12th inning, David Ortiz clinches it with a two-run homer. And they win the game. And then they go on to win the next one, the next one, and the next one. They win that championship series, and then they sweep the Cardinals for the first World Series win since 1918. And we all were celebrating that. Actually, my whole family, our first thought when they won was of our grandfather. He was no longer alive, but he had been following the Red Sox since he was a boy, and 1918, was he was alive for that, but had followed him all through the years. I grew up going to our uh, family summer house and my grandfather listening to like every Red Sox game on the radio, and, uh, and him calling them bums again and again. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and for years, and we all thought, first of our grandfather. My whole family, actually, we talked about it. It was was uncanny. Every single one of us thought only if granddad was still alive to have seen this. Only if he had lived so long. Only if he had known during all those years under a cloud that they would finally win. Why do I tell the story? Well, I think at times for us as Christians, our lives as Christians are like my grandfather. We look out at the landscape And we at times can think, when is it all going to be dealt with? When is the gospel going to have the effect we hope for? And it can feel at times like you're my grandfather listening on the radio intently 
year after year, just thinking, when will God's goodness and the truth of the gospel prevail? We can feel like losers over and over again. But God wants us to actually know more than just what our present struggles are, to know really what the end game is. And we've been going through Revelation and and we're learning about this uh, struggle that we live in, this struggle that occurs from the time of Christ's uh, ascension to his return and, and all the different aspects of it, that it's a time of struggle, that it's a time of living as believers and certainly experiencing much good, but also struggling amidst the evil of this world around us. And so last week, we looked at Revelation chapter 13. And this section of Revelation is the fourth cycle, this fourth vision cycle, and it's hitting on similar sorts of themes. But this one in particular focuses on the activity of the devil. And so we learned last week about the activity of the devil and his evil allies, these two beasts as we see them in Revelation, that that these beasts represent false kingdoms and false religion partnering together to oppress God's people to oppose God and his truth. And now we move into chapter 14. And what's going to happen here in this chapter is we're going to get to see God's counterattack. We're going to get to see God working in God's plan that is greater than the devil's plan. We're going to get to see essentially the, the championship won by God himself. So we get to look ahead. There's a difference. We're, we're not like my grandfather with the Red Sox. We actually know the end of the story. And this chapter in Revelation is so important for us to just to know that in the end, God wins. That God has a counterattack. And the knowledge of that helps us to hang on and live amidst the turmoil of this age with great hope and great expectation. So let's pray that God would teach us through his word and establish us in hope and make us people who live by faith, hope, and love in this time that we find ourselves in. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you've not left us alone to merely look at the landscape, to merely uh, be aware of the struggle and be aware of the evil in the world on our own. But you have given us your word and you've given us your promises. You've given us this wonderful book that is meant to be a blessing, is meant to help your church, and is meant to help this church, King of Grace Church, here at this point in time, in this part of the globe. So God, would you help us? Would you help each one here? Lord, you want blessing and truth for each one here. We pray we'd all have ears to hear. Wherever we may be, Lord, thank you for those who are with us, our our friends who are here, and and they're they're investigating your truth and wondering about you and, and perhaps confused. I pray you'd speak to them, that they would know that you are indeed God, you are good, and you are greater than the evil of this world. Draw our attention to you. Grant us faith. And Lord, as we leave here from this time as well, equip and empower us to live in your truth. Bless the teaching and proclamation of your word as well, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, If you could turn to Revelation 14, if you don't have a Bible with you, you can look at uh, it projected on the screen. I just recommend to have one in your hand, though. Best to get to know the Bible. We We are so privileged to have the Bible and to be able to hold God's word in our hands and read it in English. God's word, Revelation 14, it says, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like 
the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the, living, before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here's a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle, and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and the blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. God's Word, Revelation chapter 14. This, as I said, is the fourth vision cycle, uh, these somewhat overlapping cycles throughout Revelation. 
And we're looking at the latter part of this. And, and if you look through this chapter, you'll see three different things that John sees, three key elements. And so what I really want to do is go through this chapter in light of those three key elements. So first we're going to look at the first section, verses 1 through 5, God's faithful followers. And then verses 6 through 13, God's fearsome warnings. And then verses 14 through 20, God's final harvest. All of these wrapped together to really be God's answer, God's counterattack to Satan's plans. And we learn through this that God overcomes the devil. And I think the call in this, there's a call in Revelation, there's a reason God gives us his word, and the reason he gives us this chapter even, and that is that we would learn to be faithful witnesses, that we would hang on and be faithful witnesses because God's counterattack will overcome the devil. So let's dig in. God's faithful followers, verses 1 through 5. We see John seeing, he looks and he beholds on Mount Zion, stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000. This is a vision. He's looking, he's seeing the Lamb, that's Jesus, on Mount Zion. Mount Zion uh, is geographically Jerusalem, but spiritually it's the place of God's reign and God's victory. And so he sees a picture of the Lamb there with the 144,000. And these 144,000 we saw earlier on, these are the perfect number of God's people. The perfect number, 144,000 being 12 times 12 times 1,000. So the, it's a perfect number, it's a vast number. It represents something. I wouldn't understand it, I mean it, it could be literal, but I think it, it, it's beyond that because it represents the people of God. It represents the entire people of God, we saw that earlier uh, in Revelation. But it also speaks of, of first fruits in this section, so in a special way it represents the early church and as they face persecution. So it speaks to both. So these 144,000, this perfect number, is there with the Lamb on Mount Zion. They are marked themselves. Early on, remember, the beast uh, caused everybody to be marked on their forehead and hands with the name of the first beast, his name represented by a number, because back then uh, letters uh, had numerical value. They didn't have the number system we have. And so a name had a number, so they're marked with the guy's name. That, and if you add the numbers of the letters of the name, they add up to 666. That, again, that's just a, that number represents the name. It's not about the number. There's no evil about the number 666. You can use it all you want. Nothing bad will happen to you. It's just a number. But they were marked with this name and this number, they, and they couldn't engage in, in trade, buying, or selling without that mark, without that allegiance, really, to the first beast, that first beast representing a false kingdom, and particularly for the early church, it would have been the, probably the Roman kingdom. Um, and, of course, that represents what we all deal with throughout history. And then, of course, the final uh, false kingdom that we will deal with uh, before Jesus returns. So, but the contrast here is that they're marked, the 144,000 are marked with a very different name. Whose name is it that's marked on their foreheads? It's the name of the Lamb and the Father. So it's a contrast to what's earlier. It's, this is God's counterattack. These 144,000, this perfect number, is God's answer to, to Satan trying to recruit people for himself through the beast. And we're learning that God is in control and God has this perfect number. He knows who are his. These are ones redeemed from the earth. These are ones purchased by the blood of the Lamb. The Lamb shed his blood on the cross to make sure that there'd be the full number of God's chosen beloved people even amidst all the, the 
thoughts of the enemy and all the plots of his allies. God is in control. He has his number. And they are standing with the Lamb in victory on Mount Zion. They're further described here as those who have not defiled themselves with women and they remain virgins. Now, again, we understand Revelation is a prophetic book and there's a lot of images that are used to represent things. At times, indeed, yes, they are literal, but we have to recognize because it's prophetic literature, like apocalyptic literature, there's a lot of symbolic things. And, and I think knowing what we know in Scripture, and Scripture's very positive view of sex and marriage, sex within marriage, right? There's a very positive view in Scripture. It wouldn't make sense to, to understand that these are, are 144,000 are, you know, they're virgins, and that's a higher holy state. That's not what it's representing. It's representing spiritual purity, spiritual fidelity. They have not prostituted themselves by worshiping the beast and taking the mark. They have remained faithful and true to the Lord. They're spiritually pure. So this represents their spiritual purity and devotion to God. That's what it's speaking of. So these 144,000 are rescued from the world. They're, They're purchased by the blood of the Lamb. Jesus shed his blood so that their sins could be forgiven. They are believers and followers of Jesus. They follow the Lamb wherever he goes. They're right there with the Lamb. And of course we know that that his sheep hear his voice and they follow him, right? To be a believer is to hear the voice of Jesus. When you read and hear the good news, it's not just a good idea. It's not just theological truth. As a believer, when you encounter the truth that Christ died for your sins on the cross, rose again for new life. When you hear it as a believer, it's not just, well, I like that idea. It's attractive. That's a beginning point. But the believer experiences a call of God himself saying, this truth is for you. And if you've never responded to that truth, we just want you to hear him speaking through it to your heart, saying, receive this for yourself. So these followers follow the Lamb. They hear his voice. They stay close to him. They are rescued from the world and they live a life that's different. They walk, there's no lie on their lips. They are blameless. They walk in integrity. This is a contrast to the beast and his followers who who live in deceit, who are celebrating evil and sin. These ones, these 144,000 are blameless and walk in integrity. This group represents God's counterattack to the schemes of the of the enemy. God is active in opposing what the devil does by redeeming people from the earth to walk with him and to walk differently and to follow the Lord, to stay close to Jesus. And in the text we see that they uh, hear, that John hears a sound. It, it says a voice actually in verse 2. I heard a voice, but the word in Greek is sound or it can mean voice as well. I think it's a better understanding to say it's a sound because then the description afterwards, he hears something, the sound of uh, it's like the roar of many waters. The idea, think about the ocean after a storm. He's hearing the sound that's just roaring loud. It, it just fills the, where he is. He hears it's like loud thunder. It's, it's filling everything. It's booming. And he says it's like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. Uh, so when they would play harps in those days, you would sing and you would play the music. Maybe like a really loud rock band worshiping God with that music. That's kind of the idea. It's just this loud worship that he hears going on. Amen. (laughs) So that's what he's hearing, and it's coming from the throne room, but then he says the 144,000 have learned this new song. What is the new song? What what does it mean by a new song? Well, we can look later on. We'll see in chapter 19 and so forth. 
it says more about their singing and more about this song. But the song basically is a song of celebration. It's a song of victory. It's a song of salvation. They are singing of the wonders of their God that has redeemed them from the world, redeemed them from sin, has led them into this new life and is establishing this eternal kingdom. They're celebrating those things. It's a new song. It's glorious. It's heavenly. And, and they're singing. It's in the throne room. It's right there in God's presence. It's, it's being sung by the angels, by the elders, by the, the countless heavenly hosts, by the innumerable believers in the Lord. They're singing. That's what's going on. There's a celebration. There's a victory here. It makes me think, actually, of um, what went on during the Welsh revival of 1904. If you know a little bit about that story, uh, God, in his great mercy and power, swept the whole nation of Wales, and it actually went throughout Britain, came over here and started the Azusa Street revival, too. You can read about that. But during its time in, in Wales, it transformed the culture. Uh, people came to Christ in vast numbers. And, and it, it changed the culture in, in different ways. One of the things was uh, they, they were into rugby and soccer, we call it, or football. Um, and what they started doing is, first off, they didn't go on Sundays anymore to, to the games, so they had to reschedule games and cancel games. Secondly, when they were at the games, the matches, they would sing together. They would sing hymns at sporting events. And can you imagine just the sound of, of, you know, thousands of people in an arena singing to the Lord, singing songs like, God me, O thou great Jehovah, being full of believers at a sporting event. Uh, it, it's, it's a wonderful thought, and, and just I'm sure the sound was akin to what we read in chapter 14. Do you know actually to this day that at Welsh rugby matches, they still sing, God me, O thou great Jehovah. I don't know if many of them understand the history behind it. Oh, that God would do the same here. Oh, that God would so transform us by the gospel that, uh, that we would be singing at March Madness games and singing at baseball games and football games and worshiping the Lord and not even playing on Sunday anymore. God can do that. God has his number. God's active. He is at work redeeming people and changing lives and even changing culture. And so these Redeemed, sing this new song in the presence of the throne room. They sing of, of what God has done. Why is John seeing this, though? Why is it here in Scripture? Why is this recorded? What, what's the point? Well, it depicts what is true, first off, but it's also something that's good and helpful for God's people. Remember the Revelation was first read and heard in local churches that lived in a real context, that lived in the context in the Roman Empire of persecution. They had been put out of synagogues. They no longer had the safety of being counted as Jews, even though they were Jewish ethnically, many of them. They were put out until they were vulnerable. They were persecuted, and, and they couldn't buy and sell, even at times, because of persecution. And so they needed to hear this. They lived amidst the, the difficulty, the the persecution that was going on around them. They needed to hear encouragement. They needed to know that God wins, that he's in control. Guys, we need to hear it as well. Now, we don't face at this point in time the same level of persecution, but there are times when it can just feel like we're just this little number. Is, is God really going to do something? Is he doing something in the earth? And we can be discouraged. So looking at this and recognizing that God has his full victorious church, they are 
he's going to win and they're going to win with him. That helps us. It's, it's actually a lot like Elijah. If you know the story of Elijah, he had been involved in great spiritual warfare in the kingdom of Israel. And there was a counterattack from the enemy through Jezebel and her, uh, and her priests of Baal and her worship of Baal and so forth. Um, and there was a counterattack on Elijah, and Elijah ran for it. He was discouraged. And he was in a cave, and he was ready to give up. He wanted to die, actually. He was so discouraged. He was so discouraged by evil. And he said the following in 1 Kings. I think we have this to the deck, 1 Kings 19. Speaking to the Lord, the Lord confronts him, and he says, I, even I, only am left, and they seek to take, uh, and they seek my life to take it away. Have you ever felt like that? Oh, Lord, we're like the only believers. When are you going to touch the lives of those around us? We're all alone. We're this remnant, this small little remnant. And the Lord's answer to Elijah is many things. I'm, I'm at work, basically. Then he says in verse 18, Yet... I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal. He says to Elijah, Elijah, you might feel all alone, but you're not all alone. Because I am a faithful and gracious God. And I have reserved people, I have kept people from falling into this evil of Baal worship. And they're mine, there are 7,000. Why, why the number 7,000? Just a nice round number? Well, in the Bible, numbers represent things, right? Seven is the perfect number, a thousand is a vast number. Now, I think it was literally 7,000 from reading the context, but, but it's also representing the fact that God has a perfect and vast number. God is in control. God is bigger than the workings of the enemy. And despite the devil's best attempts to snuff out Christianity, to snuff out God's people, it won't succeed. Back in 1949, China fell to the communists. There were 4 million professing Christians out of a population of 540 million. So it's about 0.7% of the population. And many expected Christianity to be snuffed out under the communists because the communists in many ways are like the first and second beast. It's, a, it's an absolute government and a false religion of atheism coupled together to oppose God and oppress his people. So everyone expected, well, they're going to get wiped out. It's just a small number, really, in a vast population. But here we are. In 2018, and at this point in time, there are 70 million Christians in China or more. And it's a, that's a sevenfold growth percentage-wise of the population. It, and there's just all sorts of things going on in China. The Lord has his own. The Lamb is on Mount Zion with his 144,000 at work, despite what the enemy is doing. Hear that and be encouraged. Hear God's word and be encouraged. Don't allow the enemy's plans and, and activity to define how you think about your life as a Christian. Now, guys, we're not living in the persecution that might be going on in China or back in the Roman Empire. But we are living in a culture that's more and more anti-Christian. It wasn't that long ago, actually, that Christian values and ethics were were really the ethics that were celebrated in our culture. It wasn't that long ago when Christians were considered to hold the high moral ground in culture. But more and more so, the ethics that we treasure are coming under severe criticism. God's instructions about the blessings of sexuality uh, under his plan of lifelong monogamy between one man and one woman are considered old-fashioned at best, bigoted, and evil 
by many. And guys, if you follow social media and the news, you'll see a steady diet of commentary on these things and also a featuring of the very worst things happening in the world. It's the nature of media uh, to do that. There's a feeding frenzy in our culture to look for the most bizarre stories and to feed an ever-growing cynicism. I think we need to ask ourselves, are we succumbing to a cynicism that's not godly? Fed by these steady streams of bizarre stories. We can feel like Elijah all alone while the world's running the other way. We need God's Word to remind us. We need each other, guys. And so I'd encourage you, I, I don't I think social media can be used for great good or great evil. But if you find yourself characterized by cynicism and discouragement, maybe you need to curb your social media diet and increase your diet of fellowship. Get around brothers and sisters who are going to remind you about the Lamb and His work and the good news. are going to remind you about the kingdom of God and how He is at work in their own lives and around them. Allow these truths that we see here in Revelation and elsewhere in Scripture to fill your mind and inform your view of the world and what God's doing, not the evil around you. Hang in there. God wins. The good news of the Lamb is going to have its effect. There's an unstoppable gospel at work, even amidst the troubles of this world. Second point. God's fearsome warning. Next, John sees three angels. And each angel has a, something that they're proclaiming. The first angel is proclaiming this eternal gospel to all those who dwell on earth, to every tribe and nation and language and people. And in this gospel, he's saying, Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who has made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. There's a call in this gospel presentation to fear God and to worship God and to recognize that his judgment, the hour of his judgment has come. Now, we know the gospel proper is the good news. Gospel just means good news. The good news of Jesus Christ. And, and the proper, the core of that, is the fact that Christ has died for sin, and he's been raised from the dead, and he's alive and reigning and returning. But the core of it is his death for sin and his resurrection. That's not mentioned here, though, when it says he's proclaiming the eternal gospel. And that's in keeping with some of the themes of Revelation. There's a theme of warning in Revelation. And so this angel is warning people to be aware that God is in control, that God is judging, and that there's a call from God to worship him. The gospel itself is good news because it says, in light of the impending judgment of God and the right requirement to fear God and to worship him, in light of that, we need help because we fall short. And left on our own, we are going to be subject to judgment. The good news is Christ took that judgment on the cross, shed his blood for us, rose again so we can be forgiven. And in that truth, we can respond to really the bad news. The bad news is judgment is coming. And we are required, rightly, to worship God. And we have all fallen short of that. Creation itself is enough testimony against us that God is good and worthy of our lives. We don't have to hear anything else beyond just looking around at creation to know that we, we owe God our allegiance and our obedience. And so the gospel entails a warning as well. And so that's what's going on. The angel's declaring uh, and warning those to, to recognize that God is worthy of our praise and an hour of judgment has come. 
and that they are, we are to avoid the terrible fate of having to deal with the judgment of God on our own. There's nothing more horrifying imaginable. There's, there's nothing that compares to having to face the holy justice of God on your own two feet. Because we've all fallen short. And none of us will have an excuse. There'll be no excuse. And so there's a warning. The angels proclaiming the gospel, and there's a warning with that. It's, it's, it's for the good of all mankind that this angel's going forth. So the angel's representing the, really the message of the gospel going forth. Now we know that that comes through the church. The church's testimony and what we do and what we proclaim is really what is behind the gospel going forward here, the angel's activity. That's what's happening here. This is part of God's counterattack is to proclaim the gospel and warn all people to be aware of truth and to repent and believe. The second angel says, Fallen, fallen is Babylon, the great city. Babylon uh, was a city, and at the time of the writing of Revelation, it didn't exist. So it's not meaning literal Babylon at this point. But Babylon represents the, the city of man. It represents mankind and the height of culture uh, in rebellion against God. That's really what it represents. It's this theme that we see throughout history of mankind exalting itself in opposition to God. It starts, of course, with literal Babylon. But at the time that this was written, it would have been represented, of course, by Rome and the very city of Rome. And this angel's proclaiming that fallen, fallen is Babylon. It's a warning as well. It's a warning to all of us. Don't put your hope in Babylon. It's a warning to those who would be infatuated with the fading and twisted glory of this world. Don't do it. Don't put your hope in Babylon. Don't put your hope in the glories of this world. Don't put your hope in this great city. And of course, in their day, Rome was such an example of that, but really throughout the whole church age we see this. And we don't just see this in literal cities, we see it in culture. In all cultures, apart from God, there are good things and there are things of it that are really in rebellion against God. And so we need only to see Babylon, we need only to look around at our culture, to look at certain aspects of our culture, certain aspects of what is done in things like film and art and music and politics and social policy and so forth to see Babylon, to see the ways of the world and the glory, the, the twisted glory, the fading glory of this world. And so this angel's warning is to don't be infatuated, don't be seduced by this twisted fading glory. Again, we're seeing that God wins in the end and, and this warning helps us because we can, we can be duped. We can look at, at the glory of Babylon and, and be duped and think, wow, that's really attractive. Because the, the way the world works is it weaves in good things, but then it twists them. And they're taken off of their proper foundation and focus of God. Every good thing is from God. It's meant to be enjoyed in God to God. That's, that's how creation is supposed to function. But the world, in its rebellion against God, all of us left to ourselves, grabs a hold of this glory wonderful thing, this glorious thing that God makes and takes it away from the foundation being God and the focus of God and makes it our own and twists it. But it still is glorious. So you can watch Hollywood and think, wow, there's a lot of cool stuff there. You can watch just any aspect of culture. You can listen to music and there might be wonderful aspects of that music, wonderful truths, but we need to be discerning and not just take it all hook, line, and sinker. 
not be infatuated by Babylon, to recognize in the end Babylon will fall along with all those who put their hope in Babylon. There's a documentary that uh, PBS did called The Triumph of the Nerds, kind of like Revenge of the Nerds. And uh, it's a documentary about uh, how the world has been changed by a bunch of nerds. Um, and how, uh, and that just makes me think about the reality that um, when I was in high school, um, those guys who spent all their time on computers um, and were like really into computers, they were just nerds for the most part. I mean, if you were one of those guys, I'm sorry, uh, I don't mean to insult you, but that's how we thought of them. They were just nerds. Like those guys are nerds and they're not even worth like, you know, being around or whatever. They're just, just nerds. And then there were the cool people, right? And for me, at least when I was in high school, I wanted to be one of the cool people. And I, and I thought I was one of the cool people. Um, but that's what it was all about. And I didn't want anything to do with the nerds. Now here we are 35 years later or so uh, for me. And you know what? All the nerds are doing really well. And, and some of those nerds are like multi-billionaires, right? Like the richest nerd in the world, Bill Gates, right? I mean, and a lot of the guys that were cool are not doing so well. But when I was like 16 years old, I didn't see that at all. I want to be cool. That's part of what's going on here with this angel. Fallen, fallen is Babylon. Don't put your hope in the cool things of this world. Because in the end, God will judge things according to his perfect standard and Babylon will be fallen. The third angel, in line with this as well, has a warning, very somber warning. The third angel follows with a loud voice and basically declares doom to those who would take the mark of the beast. If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath. Poured full strength into the cup of his anger. He will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast in its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. They thought it was a good thing to do at the time. But in the end, they will be punished for their sin and evil. And that punishment will never cease. There's powerful imagery here. We need to keep in mind that God is perfectly just. No punishment of God will be excessive. But it will be just. And the consequences of rebellion against God in eternity apart from Him are never presented in the scriptures in a mild way. They're always presented in a way that is horrifying. And I think we should understand from that that you don't ever want to be in a place to experience that. Now, it won't be unjust or excessive. It will be just. It will be perfect. But the point of this colorful language is to get through our minds and our hearts that this is a horrible unimaginable fate. And we want nothing to do with the beast and the mark. We want nothing to do with bowing in allegiance to the ways of this world. We want to keep ourselves far from there. We want to follow the Lamb and run to Him for grace, to resist the ways of the world, to remain His faithful witnesses, to be His people. It's a warning for every person 
on the earth, but it's also a warning for believers, lest we think it's a light thing to fall away from the living God. There's a function of the fear of the Lord in Revelation that's meant to be for our good. It is sobering. Sobering to read this. Sobering to think about it. For the sake of time, I'm going to have to move on. But I would encourage you at some point, if you are an American believer, to be aware of one of the most important pieces of American literature, the sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God by Jonathan Edwards. Where he talks about this reality in a way that after you read that, you will be overwhelmed, but you also realize the wonderful mercy of God extended to us now. There's no reason anyone has to live in hell because the gospel is there to be received. The mercy of God is presented to anyone here and much of our society, our culture as well. And so why would you die? Why would you take the mark of the beast? Why would you be infatuated by this world when when these truths are so starkly presented to us? Receive his love and mercy. God desires that none should perish. First Timothy makes that very clear. He takes no joy in these things, but he's holy and just. So take this as a warning to run to Jesus and to find mercy and grace in him, to be forgiven for your sins. You needn't wait another moment to be in danger of that horrid eternity. Right at this moment, you can simply turn and say, save me, Jesus, from this. He will save any and all who come to him completely. God will deal with Satan and those who ally with him. There's wonderful good news here, though, because there's an application. There's a call for the endurance of the saints. It's a call for the saints to, to remain in Jesus, to not compromise, to not take lightly the reality of what awaits those who follow the beast. But there's also... A voice that's heard in verse 13. Do you see that there? And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. And the Spirit of God himself says, blessed indeed that they may rest from their labors for their deeds will follow them. What a contrast to what you hear right before that because the ones right before that, there's an eternal torment. They have no rest day or night. No rest forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and more. No rest. But for those who run to Jesus, this gracious Lamb, the Lord, there's rest and reward. And you know that rest means more and more to you as you deal with the realities of this world, right? The sin that we see, the evil in our own hearts that we struggle with, the, the evil around us, that to hear of one day when there will be rest from these things and reward is precious. What a, what a wonderful promise to, to offset the, the gloom of the reality of those who rebel. It's calling us to, to live for this. And then finally, I want to talk about God's final harvest quickly. There are two harvests here at the end. We meet Jesus on a cloud. We know it's Jesus because it's parallel with Daniel 7, where Jesus is the Son of Man, the victorious one, coming to rule and reign, coming to judge all. And so that the, this man on the cloud with a crown is Jesus, and he has a sharp sickle. He, ta- he 
He gathers a harvest with a sharp circle because the harvest is ripe, it's ready. And then there's a second, a second harvest by an angel who too has a sickle. And it's a harvest of grapes. And these grapes are thrown into this wine press that represents the punishment, the wrath, the holy justice of God on these grapes and these people. And that metaphoric wine press is trodden as grapes were uh, wine was produced in that day. You would trod on them, you'd walk on them. And there's blood that flows out, and it fills 1,600 stadia. That's about 184 miles. That's about the size of Israel, by the way. I think it's partly speaking of God's judgment in AD 70 on Jerusalem, but also speaking of the final judgment as well. It's a vivid, horrid picture of this harvest. There's two harvests here, though. Are they both harvests of judgment? We know the second one certainly is. Well, actually, if you dug in, you'd find that the Greek word, the original word for both harvest and ripe, are different in the two harvests. And so it's a different sort of harvest. The words used in the first one where Jesus harvests are the words used for a, a harvesting of wheat. The words used in the second part are the words used for the harvesting of grapes, which we know, of course, it says that. And if you'll notice that with the grapes, there's wrath poured out, but with the wheat, there's nothing negative said about it. There's no winnowing of the wheat. There's no, there's no burning of the wheat. There's nothing negative, but it's negative for the grapes. And so what I would understand, along with many others, is that the first harvest is the harvest of God's people brought in by Jesus. And it's a vast harvest, and it's time to reap that harvest. Those grains, the, the Shafts of wheat representing the people of God, this vast field harvested by Jesus at the end. And then the grapes represent those who have refused the mercy of God, have continued in their rebellious ways, reaped and brought in to final judgment. This is here again in line with the the whole theme of, of the chapter. We get to see that in the end God wins, that God deals with evil. We get to recognize what happens. We get to recognize and put our hope in that glorious harvest. By the way, the harvest is ripe, but the labors are few right now. We live in a time where God is using his people to be part of that harvest, to love others and share the gospel, to participate in that. There's a a promise here. There's an orientation, and, and there's a warning to stay away from the ways of the world, to know and recognize who gets to win in the end. The band could come up as we prepare to transition to communion. Back in World War II, um, the Nazis overran France, and they, the French people under the Nazi regime formed the, the Vichy government. It was a different government, and it was a government that was subservient to the Nazis. They, though sought to act independently, eventually came under the Nazis, and they participated in some of the horrors of the Nazi regime, like sending Jews to concentration camps and actually fighting for the Nazis. But you know what? At the time, it probably made a lot of sense to people in France, right? Because Germany, under the Nazis, was a force to be reckoned with. They took over that part of Europe in no time. And as you were an observer at that time, as you looked and saw the Nazi army just take over France and and threaten to really take over all of Europe and all over the the whole world, Hitler's dream of a thousand-year kingdom, as he called it, a thousand-year Reich in German, the word for kingdom, seemed like a reality. And, you know, if you were a French citizen, you probably thought, might as well get in now on the beginnings of this thing, right, to get in on the good, the good side with the Nazis, so I'm going to join the Vichy, Vichy government. 
And so many did. Little did they know that four years later, the Allies would successfully take back France and it would be liberated. And those who had lived for the Vichy government found themselves sentenced, some executed, and put out of office. I'm sure they thought, I wish I had known how the war was going to turn out. I would have made a better decision. Guys, we know how the war turns out. We know that God wins. We know that God's at work now and God will finish the task. So let us live in light of that. Let us be encouraged by that. Let us not be overwhelmed by the things we observe. Let us also live as those redeemed from the earth. How do you live as a redeemed one? Well, you live in the goodness of the gospel. But you also live in God's creation and you demonstrate what it looks like to be redeemed by interacting with things of culture in a redemptive way. We don't just simply separate ourselves saying it's all evil. Let's just kind of isolate and live over here and be away from the world. No, we are amongst the nations and we live as those redeemed. We are an army who interacts with culture in a redemptive way. So we don't throw out everything. We keep the good. We filter the bad. We redeem it. We use it. We demonstrate what the kingdom looks like because we know that that kingdom will prevail. So any investment in that kingdom makes total sense. So every aspect of life, we live under the Lamb. We live as those redeemed. We live in hope of what God will do, despite the devil's best attempts. Before we transition to communion, let's just take a moment. Uh, apologize for going long. Just take a moment to just come before the Lord. Say, Lord, is there anything in my life that needs to be adjusted in light of Revelation 14? Am I enamored by the world? Am I spending too much time on social media, hearing the negative things. Whatever it might be, however God would call you to respond. Let's just take a moment to do that, and then Mike will lead us into the next, next thing with communion.